As we continue going through the the Gospel of Mark, uh, we are at the end of chapter 12 this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 38 to 44. Uh, Did I say Matthew again? I've done that before a couple times. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Uh, before we, before we, we, uh, we have uh, the Word of God read to us, before we, we, we hear the preaching here, uh, let's, let's pray. Uh, we all need it. Uh, we need it here as, as listeners. Um, I need it as a, as a preacher as well. Um, make even, even for something as simple as getting my passage correct this morning. Uh, let's, let's pray, though. Lord God, you are good. You are kind for giving us your word that you have not just left us with a, with a rudimentary knowledge of you or left us to scrabble and scrape for trying to, to find out who you are looking underneath rocks and in the dark corners, but that you have revealed yourself not only in the creation, but you have revealed yourself to us most fully, most beautifully, most wonderfully as our Savior and our Redeemer here through your word, through this word that we have, through the word of, of the word of God being made flesh for us. And then we have your word here, uh, the scriptures testifying to, uh, to Jesus Christ, testifying to you and all of your works, your beautiful, uh, wonderful, uh, saving works as you have given this word to us by your very spirit. And so as we approach your word this morning, Lord, we need your spirit to help us to understand this word, uh, to break down uh, the, uh, the barriers and walls that we might want to put up in times when it makes us uncomfortable. We need your spirit to be focusing us and tilling our hearts so that we would receive uh, this implanted word uh, with care. And that it might flourish with the watering then from your spirit who gives life. Father, I pray that the, the, the man preaching here this morning, that he would not be the focus, but rather that Jesus would shine through. That he would be the focus in this time. And that we would leave this morning here uh, seeing him as more beautiful and believable and beautiful than we did when we first came. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 38 through 44. This is the word of God. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Amen. What is the marker, what is the identifier of someone who is truly devoted to God? How do you pick them out of a crowd? How are they recognized? 
Likely, it's not going to be someone with a title. Likely, it's not going to be someone who is recognized for these great deeds. But probably, most likely, it would be someone who would be serving anonymously, who would be serving and loving God quietly. Because the essence of true devotion is a whole person love of God from the heart. So we have to think about what is the status of the heart? What are the desires of the heart? And that's one of the themes that we've seen here lately in in Mark. We've seen at Jesus' emphasis on the whole person. And the whole person includes the whole heart also. I mean, in the context here of what we've been looking at before in the last few weeks, there have been these religious leaders who have been coming to Jesus over and over to challenge him. And they come with these questions that have this illusion of some sort of deep religious depth to them. But Jesus points them out and says, it's all just a sham. It's the heart that matters. And you're asking with the wrong heart. It's not a title that you come to me with. It's not a status that you come thinking that you have. It's not some sort of public religiosity that you have. He says, remember, what is the great commandment from last week? Love the Lord your God with all that you are, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's what I want, he says. That's what God desires. A whole person devotion takes into account everything, all of who you are, including the heart. And so what we have here, here, by contrast, what we're going to see offered up here is two hearts here. We have, we have uh, the, an instance of an entitled heart and then a heart that knows its poverty. Now, an entitled heart is focused on itself. It will go to extremes to ensure that it is fed with exaltation, that it's properly fed with status. And that then leads to a religious devotion which puts what at the center? Itself, right? It will stop at nothing then to have its, its, its needs fulfilled in the endless quest of fulfillment. It will exalt itself. It will push others down. It will even abuse its authority and it will prove itself antithetical then to truly being uh, devoted to God. But on the other hand, by contrast, you have a heart that knows its poverty and a heart that knows its poverty recognizes that it has nothing and then it will look longing and then it will look longingly to God to be filled. There's no entitlement there. It recognizes that it has nothing and comes with empty hands. And so we're going to see that this morning here. And our main point is this, that knowing our poverty leads us to satisfaction in God's grace and devotion of the heart. Right? Knowing our poverty leads us to satisfaction in God's grace and also leads us to a devotion of the heart. And that is these, these two hearts here are exemplified by two people that Jesus points out. One is, is the scribes. And one is also a widow. Now the scribes exemplify hearts that are driven by status. Whereas this widow that he points out exemplifies this heart that is longing for mercy. And the heart that longs for mercy that brings true wholehearted devotion to God. And hearts that are devoted to God then by his mercy they give from the whole heart. And so the first point that we want to see then is a heart driven by status takes for itself. Right? A heart driven by status takes for itself. Jesus points out the scribes here. He says, beware of the scribes. Right? And he says, they're not hard to identify. Just go out and look in the public places and you'll see them. 
You'll see these, the scribes walking about bearing all the signs of pious people. They're wearing long robes. In fact, the only thing longer than their robes are their prayers. Very verbose prayers that are done uh, for the sake of looking good. And they're given status and respect by everyone as they're walking through the marketplaces. Ah, yes, Rabbi. Ah, yes. They're given the important seats in worship. They're the ones who would sit up front looking forward out at everyone else. They were the ones who sought after the honored places uh, in feasts because, hey, they thought, well, I'm an honored person. I'm a religious person. Uh, they love, Jesus says, they love public greetings in the marketplaces. But though you get beneath all of the pageant, the pageantry, and the heart tells a different story. In one sense, it's like the Grinch from How the Grinch Stole Christmas, right? He's dressed up in the regalia of Santa Claus. And he's, if you remember the one part in there, he's pretending to do service to little Cindy Lou who, when she catches him trying to stuff the Christmas tree up the, up the chimney, why, Santa Claus, are you doing this? Well, this one light bulb is out, and so I'm going to go take it back to my factory up at the North Pole. And don't worry, I'll get everything taken care of. But really, though, in all of his festive attire, what's he doing? He's robbing the Who's. And he's doing it all selfishly to take for himself and to fill his own selfish heart, which is, by the way, also two sizes too small. But the scribes, these scribes here were doing the same thing. They were using their position to take for themselves. To satisfy their own hearts and their own selfish desires and to feed their own egos. Dressed up in the robes of religious people. Using their religious piety for public standing. Engaging in all sorts of ostentatious religious behavior to be exalted in the eyes of the people amongst whom they lived. And the worst in all of this here is that they were taking advantage of widows, Jesus also says. I mean, how religious can you be, actually, at the heart, if that's what you're doing? Widows, in this time, were some of the most vulnerable people. They had no legal protection. They had no means of income because their husbands were gone. They relied upon being taken care of by family members if they had family members still living. And so you even have this repeated theme in the Old Testament. The Lord is the defender of the orphan and the widow. And yet here are those religious leaders who should have known the word better than anyone else there. They devoted themselves to its study. They're abusing their privilege and they're sponging from the widows for their own gain. Now we think about who were they devoted to? Who were these people in the long robes with the long prayers? Who were they devoted to? Were they devoted to God? Of course not. They were devoted to themselves. Take away the robes. Take away all of the signs of respect. And what do you get? Strip them of everything. And what do you find? The heart. In one sense, it's like pulling those robes back. Almost like pulling the curtain back. And you see their insides. And there's the heart, right? Look at a person's heart and you'll see what that person is devoted to. What comes to the heart's surface of someone who's devoted to God? It's a desire for the will of God, right? It's not what they want, but it's the Lord's will be done, right? That's what we see in Jesus. 
Right? Even in the darkest moments of his, of his life, even in the Garden of Gethsemane where he knew, where he was facing judgment on the cross, his betrayal of facing all the wrath of, of the sins of his people, he didn't think of himself, right? He's sweating blood. He knows what's going to happen. But he says, no, God, your will be done. And that devotion there, that wholehearted devotion took him to the cross because he was so devoted to the will of God the Father to reconcile sinners that he would undergo such hell for us. But though what comes to the surface, though, of a heart that's devoted to itself? It's not devotion to God's will. It's devotion and concern for oneself. The desire for personal gain, for status, for exaltation and recognition. It's the feeling of personal power which comes through recognition. We all like to be recognized, don't we? Oh, there's something intoxicating about it every once in a while, though. A heart like this will inevitably take. That's what it, like it did from the widows. Personal gain at others' expenses, which betrays a devotion to God, which goes no deeper than their outer religiosity that they dress themselves in. And the heart that's willing to take is rarely going to be satisfied for very long. The satisfaction which comes from recognition is as ephemeral as the fleeting accolades which feed an insecure ego. So when we look at motives, they have a curious thing. Motives are like an x-ray for the heart. Right? Like, like, like the x-ray machine at airport security. You, you go in, right? You put your arms up and it's able to see everything underneath, Nothing's hidden. And examining motives then help us to see our religious robes and and to get beneath our prayers. And so we think about motives being an x-ray. Well, what are some x-ray questions that we think about? How about for this one? Why do you serve God? Why do you serve God? And that can be in whatever capacity or role. It can be in some sort of formal capacity that you serve God, maybe in this church. It can just be in some sort of way that you help out. But how important does recognition play into your service? Is it something you desire? Is it something that you crave? Is it something that it takes the, if you weren't recognized, it takes a little bit of the the luster and the sheen off what you do? I mean, if you weren't recognized, would you still serve? Would you still serve even without a title? If no one was to give you thanks in what you do for the church, would you even want to do it? This is all about, all about the heart there, isn't it? See, gaining status, though, isn't a reason for service. That's a that's self-driven motive, isn't it? And that self-driven motive there, it ceases to be service. Service is because of a status, though. Real, true service to God comes from a status that's not from ourselves, right? If you bear the ultimate status that comes through Jesus Christ, you're actually freed. It doesn't matter of any sort of status that anyone else gives you or any other status that, that you may, may want because you actually have the deepest, greatest status before God the Father where it truly matters in Jesus Christ. You are called a child of God if you are His. Right? You are brought into the family of God. You are considered righteous before him. What more could you want when he calls you beloved? There's no earthly status that you can have, no matter how much gain or actually how much of your earthly status lost, can actually compare to the, to the status that you have in union with Jesus Christ. And as we talked about from last week, as I brought up, 
Christian growth is learning to live comfortably in the robes of Jesus Christ, in his perfect, righteous robes. It's getting more comfortable in them. But seeking after status is to, and recognition is to reenact the story of the emperor's new clothes. You already have the, the, the best robes of Jesus Christ. They're the most beautiful robes that you could ever want. And so, though, if you are trying to trade those earthly robes, uh, or the, trying to trade those, those heavenly robes of Jesus Christ for anything earthly, or anything of status or power, you don't realize, though, that those robes that you want to take on is actually going to leave you naked and exposed. See, it's all about learning to love what you have in Jesus. Learning what to, lo- to love what you have in Christ above all else, then. And if you don't think any of this is important, though, listen to Jesus' his imperative that he says. He says, beware of the scribes. Right? Beware of them. Why? Because he says, theirs is the, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, evil and selfish desires here are all, that they have are already in opposition to God. But you know how much worse it is, though, when they're dressed up in the name and the service of God? See, Jesus says, these are not people to be followed. Don't follow after these sorts of people because they are not like the God who gives and gives and gives. But rather, they and the heart just seeks to take and take and take. These aren't people to be emulated. The people who are to be emulated is only one, Jesus Christ, in his humility of which he came for people like me and you. He didn't come dressed fancy, but you know what? He came as the son of God for you, for us. These people, on the other hand, they're dressed fancy, but they're on the path to hell. He says, watch out for them. See, it's a call for us to really, again, lear, to learn what, what it is that, and, and to love what it is that we have in Jesus Christ. That in him, we got everything that we could ever want. And how, he's the one that we ought to be following after, not any sort of other vain, outward religious sense. And Jesus points, though, to a contrasting example, not like the scribes. This is actually quite like the opposite. Not loud and ostentatious, but unassuming. And with a heart condition that's entirely different. And that's of the the widow. Second point. A heart longing for grace, though, like this one. A heart longing for grace gives out of devotion. It doesn't take for itself. But a heart that longs for grace gives out of devotion. Because we have here, by contrast, a widow. Now Jesus, after all this, is sitting in the... In the, the, some of the outer temple courts, and then he's give, or everyone is giving, and he's sitting there with, with the disciples, and they're watching all of what's going on. People giving their gifts. In fact, there would have been a number of these big boxes that were uh, they were trumpet shaped. They were they were made of, of bronze, and so they would be putting in their coins. And you can imagine all of the clamoring and the clanging that would happen as these coins are being poured into these big bronze. Uh, bronze uh, trumpet-shaped boxes here. And some people are bringing excesses of, of money that was pulled from their surpluses. And you can imagine them dumping in these coins and just the, the big clamor, the, the clattering, just like a symbol a, a, a being banged over and over, right? It would have been the scene of amazement. All eyes and all ears are focused on who's got the bigger gift? What's the noise it's making? But then, quietly, and almost imperceptibly here, a widow comes in and slips in two small copper coins. 
And you can imagine Jesus at this point getting up, sitting up and pointing and like, guys, guys, that's it right there. That's true devotion. See, it's quiet and it's minimal, but it is the most significant gift of them all. A widow here, she's got nothing. She's poor. She needs a defender, but she gives all of what she had to live off of. Everything. She gives two coins. All right, two, it says two pennies, but what this would have been was, was two of the smallest coins here, which would have equaled um, the two of them together, one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which a denarius would have been equal to, uh, to one day's wage. Now, if you think about, in, you know, if we think about contemporarily here, let's say a $15 an hour for eight hours, one uh, sixty-fourth of that is a buck eighty. Let's say two bucks she puts in. And I think, but she gives, though, everything, everything that she has, everything she had to live on. I mean, what really can you live on even for a day with $2, right? You can get a couple packs of ramen and you can maybe order something from the value menu, right? Two coins, though. She gives everything, two coins. And that's significant, too, because what could she have done? She could have put one in and kept the other to live off of for that day. But she gives both. What made it so significant? Why did Jesus point this out above all others? Why is it that those two coins going in may have been silent to everyone else, but rang out more loudly than any of the other coins being poured in? Because they were done with the heart, with a deep trust and a devotion. She gave everything. She gave all that she had. And that's what happens to a heart that knows its need. And, when it, and at a heart that knows the merciful character of God, it gives, it expresses trust in God. It expresses devotion in God. Because as a widow there, she knew full well that she required mercy. Every day of her life was one that she had to live by tangibly, by grace. She was vulnerable from, from a, a legal She was vulnerable to others from legal exploitation. She had no one to defend her. There would have been people all over, immoral people, who were trying to to con her out of some of her money somehow. And she had little means of making a proper living. She she was the lowest in society. She had no basis for pride or self-exaltation. She had nothing. In fact, she knew that everything that she had was a gift. Every meal that she ate was a reminder to her of God's generous provision to her. Each coin that she had, she knew was given to her by God. Each day that she wasn't taken advantage of was because of God's preserving grace. She knew that she wasn't entitled to anything. Friends, if you aren't know that you're not entitled to anything, what does that, what's that, what's that do for us? It brings up humility. It's the humility is the recognition that we aren't owed anything. Humility is a recognition that we are people who are in desperate need. Humility is recognition that God's mercy is all that keeps us. And it's this humility is what leads us to love and devotion. Right? We live constantly, continually by mercy. That life is only by his loving mercy. All right, as we look to him, not only as a provider... And the one who sustains us. But as we also look to him as redeemer. The one who keeps us. The one who has has secured us firmly in his grip. And given us everything. When we look at him like that. That's humility. 
right? We, are, we become people who know firsthand, uh, or when we are people who know firsthand the mercy of God, then what do we do? We love him in return. Because it's people who love who are devoted, right? That's the essence of marital vows, of relationships, right? They are relationships that, are, that we are devoted to, where we love the other because we love them, right? It's devotion that comes from love. And loving devotion like this here isn't afraid to give God everything because it knows of God's gracious love for them. Right, why was the widow able to give all that she had? Why was the widow able to give all that she was? Because she knew the mercy of the Lord God. They knew, she knew his love. And she had then in turn a loving devotion to him because he loves us. She was devoted to a God who cared deeply for her. A God who devotes himself to the humble and to the meek and to the helpless. A God who devotes himself in that, in, in, to the extent here of himself becoming humble and meek and helpless. The Son of God taking on human flesh, becoming humble, meek, even helpless as a little baby who was born. And himself then all throughout his life having to trust in his father as he gave himself, as he gave his whole person then in trust and devotion to God. See, devotion arises when we see the incredible graciousness of God. How can we not, right? How can our hearts not be moved to devotion when we understand the grace of God and his devotion to being gracious? Because it is, a, it is his very character, She wasn't just a widow. She knew she wasn't just a widow, but she knew that she was a daughter of the Most High King. How can can that not do something within us? You see how different this is from the scribes, though? They were only concerned with themselves, and they were actually afraid of what they might lose. But here, this is a status that she had. This is a status that those who are humble before God, a status that is way better than anything else here. It's a status that can never be taken away. It is a status that defeats all of our religious insecurities by giving us a better name. Not a name given by someone else here, but a name that is given by God himself. And see, this is a confidence that we have, not in in yourself, but this is a confidence that we can have in God A confidence that says, no matter what happens, I'm devoted. I'm devoted because you still love me. That you will always love me and I give myself over to you wholeheartedly because I have nowhere else to turn. But third though, a devoted heart like this, a devoted heart gives from the whole heart. A devoted heart gives from the whole heart. Now this passage isn't exactly about money per se, It's about what our affections are drawn to and what our affections are devoted to. But we also, though, can't ignore the fact that she expresses her wholehearted devotion here by giving. She gives everything that she had to live on because God was everything to her. The humble heart, which longs for God's grace, will then be devoted to God. And that heart that is devoted to God is able to give freely from the heart. It has the best object of affection. It can give everything from deep within to God out of this love and affection here. Now, what was the difference between her gift and the gift of the others? 
It actually wasn't the amount. It wasn't the size of the gift. It was in the, the devotion. It was a wholehearted devotion. That's what set it apart. Right? All these people were giving much. They gave out of, a, out of an abundance. They gave out of a deep surplus of what they had, right? But she gave everything that she had. The other gifts were as hollow as the clanging that they made as they fell down into the receptacle. But her gift, though, was different. Her gift had weight. It had the weight of love behind it. Too often, the economics of the world creep into our approach towards giving in the kingdom. A lot of times we we might want to say, yes, certainly God is pleased by gifts of all sizes. But you know what? It's the large gifts that are actually really important for the kingdom. That's what drives the work of the kingdom, right? When people really empty their pockets like that. But what does Jesus point out? Are you talking about the impressive size? No, he's talking about the impressive heart and devotion. The impressive significance of the most insignificant gift there isn't size. The impressive significance of, sorry, the impressive significance is of the most, I don't even know what I was saying here. I'm sorry. <laughs> What's really truly significant here is not, the, not the, the size. What's truly significant in all of this is the heart. It doesn't matter the size. It is the love and the devotion of which is be, it's being brought forth to God. The amount doesn't matter, right? What matters? It's the love. It's the devotion. See, God doesn't actually really need your giving, right? Of course he doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? How, why, do, why, why does God, the one who has created, why does the sovereign God, need, he, doesn't, he doesn't need your stuff in the first place, right? He owns it all. right? What we do when we give, it's an expression of our devotion to him. It's in a way that we can tangibly give for the good of his kingdom. And he never asks us to give because he really needs it. I really need you to give because I really need it. No, that's not it. And part of it is discipleship. Part of it is just following after, after God and following after Jesus. It's forsaking everything for his sake. And he's able to use any gifts and he's able to use all gifts. In fact, I'll say this. He'd rather have a church of small giving that comes from the heart than a church of large gifts that are given halfway. And he'll do more with those small gifts than he will with those big ones there. I mean, look at the churches that are living in abject poverty across the world. Churches where they have nothing. Churches in third world countries. Churches in China, right? But those churches are flourishing because they're devoted because they know that they live by grace. In fact, perhaps then our definitions of what a flourishing church looks like needs to be challenged. A flourishing church is one that is growing in grace and truth and love and service. Right? That's a flourishing church. Worldly economics don't inform the significance of giving. And neither does it inform the, the significance of the givers. Because the value of a person to the kingdom isn't by what they, may able, what they may be able to give. And by extension, the value of a person to the kingdom is also not by their own gifts, by their abilities, by their talents, by their intellect, by their strength. None of those things. 
Because again, doesn't if, if that's what we're looking at, as we're looking at, 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 at as the criteria for who is truly valuable in the kingdom, aren't we then looking at who are those people with those long white robes? No. Remember, though, who is it that Jesus calls into the kingdom? He calls insignificant people. He calls the poor. He calls the broken. He calls the weary, the weak. He calls people who very well may not have very much to give, at least from the world's perspective. See, none of that stuff matters. Jesus takes insignificant people. He lifts them out of the ashes, and then he gives them a name. He gives them a status that is better than anything else that they could bear. So he doesn't love the gift itself that's given. He loves, he doesn't love it because of the size. He loves it because of the one who is giving the gift. And he loves it because of the heart that they have poured out into it. If you're a parent, you've probably received a lot of of homemade projects and and gifts from your kids, right? Right? These things where they, they come to you and they say, look at what I've made for you. And they've poured their heart and their soul into it. You know, it's got all sorts of, glitter on it and you quite, can't quite understand what it is and you have to ask, them, oh great, tell me what it is, you know. But those are the things that are more precious to you than if they bought you an expensive gift, right? Why? It's because of the love and the devotion and everything that they have poured out into it there, right? That's why you love it. That's the love here that we have. That's the love, the love of God here then that he has for us and the love that he has when we give to him in that sort of way, that sort of love that he has frees us then to actually give to him. It frees us. Have some of us neglected giving because we don't have a lot financially? And we ask, well, what's the use of giving if what I have is actually really pretty small? See, that's not the point, though. He doesn't care about the amount. What's he care about? He cares about you. And he loves any gifts and all gifts that are given with the heart. It is an expression of devotion and trust in him. It's what he loves. He doesn't care about the size. He cares about the heart. Those are the sacrifices which are more valuable than the extravagant ones. Those are the sacrifices that echo in eternity further than the clanging of any coins in a coffer ever could. He uses gifts like that in disproportionate ways. He he uses small gifts to usher in a world-upturning kingdom. Think about those two copper coins that this widow slipped in there. Who would have thought that those two small coins could have the worldwide and the historical impact that they have for the kingdom over all these years? See, this is the essence of being a cheerful giver, that I am free to give to God all of who I am even for my finances, because he loves all of who I am. And this is what happens when we understand the free and extravagant grace of the triune God. Because God himself is a giver. God the Father gave us the Son. God the Son gave himself to us. And he didn't stop there, but he continued to give the Spirit of God to actually put that love of God within our hearts. Do any of us deserve this? Absolutely not. There's not a single one of us here who deserves this. But praise God that he is merciful to us. As we'll come shortly to the table, we approach the Lord's table then with humility. 
and with empty hands in this same sort of way. As we hold out our empty hands waiting to receive from him mercifully, waiting to receive from him graciously yet once again. Let's pray. Lord God, please protect our hearts from selfishness. Selfishness for in the terms in the ways of looking for status and exaltation. Selfishness for even what it is that we're devoted to. And really, God, how can we be selfish when we understand who you are? And we begin to understand who we are. We pray that you would work in us a wholehearted devotion, that your spirit would be continuing to cast our eyes upon your goodness, the fact that you are a giver, and to show us what it is truly valuable, that it's not a kingdom that we could make, it's not a kingdom that we could build, but that we get to be a part of the kingdom that you are making, a transcendent divine kingdom, one that will renew all things. And we get to give to that. We get to give to you because we, are, we love you and we are devoted to you. Make our hearts purer and purer in our adoration and love. And prepare our hearts now as we come to the Lord's table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.